and welcome to the Eat Realty Heal podcast. I am your host, Nicolette Richet, and you are currently listening to a special edition of the Eat Realty Heal podcast. This includes nine interviews with participants that agreed to be part of my PhD research. And I'm able to submit these nine interviews with these experts, with these people with lived experience, their knowledge, their expertise, their research, their traditional ecological knowledge, and so much more. We are centering the voices of BIPOC people, that stands for Black Indigenous People of Color across North America, to understand what are the barriers that exist in BIPOC communities for these individuals and in being able to access the clean, fresh, real foods that are needed to be able to not only prevent but also arrest and completely reverse chronic diseases all across the nation, our nations. So I'm very fortunate, very honored, very humbled that all of these nine participants agree to be part of this research and contribute their knowledge. You know, what structural and systemic inequities are happening where we're at the point where we can't even get what we need we don't know how to properly prepare the bulk items. We're not eating communally. Um, we're rushing, maybe having lunch in our car, that five minute break we have, you know, gulping down something. You're not chewing your food long enough. <laughs> like it's just, we're in this toxic fast paced society, which is basically the outcome of the last four or 500 years of, of a very thick capitalistic exploitative society that has damaged human beings, soil and people to the point where certain processes and practices around eating have been normalized and we don't realize that it's actually causing illness. And to me, that's just like, that to me is really sad and really upsetting. So episode three of a nine part series, this includes Dr. Harper. Now, Dr. Breeze Harper, I mean, she's a renegade. She's doing incredible things in the world, just as all of our participants in this research are. Dr. Harper has a PhD in social sciences with emphasis in intersectional, intersectionality, anti-racism and racial gender inclusion equity. She holds an MA in educational technologies with an emphasis in racial gender inclusion, equity and technology from Harvard University, where we sh she received the Dean's Award for her master's thesis work on how racial gender privilege operates in cyberspace forums. She earned her BA in feminist geography from Dartmouth College and received the Innovative Thesis Award for her work on heterosexism in rural geographies. Dr. Breeze Harper has over 15 years of career experience as a diversity, equity, and inclusion expert, ranging from curriculum development to conference planning to research and reporting, publishing books and articles, doing workshop design and facilitation, recruitment and retainment, and she is an incredible human being. So I'm really excited to welcome Dr. Brice Harper, um, also known as Sista Vegan. She's a bright light of energy, just as every single one of our participants are. So please, let's welcome Dr. Breeze Harper to the show. And you know what to do, folks. If you enjoyed this episode, please go back and listen to episode one and episode two with Dr. Lickers Xavier 
and Dr. Syke Williams-Forsen. They are both beautiful voices in this space, so wise, so intelligent, um, so liberating. And it's important that we all understand the information that is being shared here today and that we share it with others. So please spread this message, spread this episode, spread the entire podcast series out to everybody that you know so they can understand these very important topics that are affecting not just BIPOC communities, but members of every community globally. Thanks very much, and we'll see you at the end of the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Eat Real to Heal podcast. I am your host, Nicolette Richet, and on today's show, I am so very honored, pleased, and blessed to welcome Dr. Breeze Harper to the show. Welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to start talking about these really important topics around just, uh, health and food and nutrition and justice as it relates to uh, people of color communities. And, you know, during my research, it's it's amazing. After all of the years that I've spent in school, I have never come across any of these topics until I had to go dig for them and literally harvest them out of the vast amounts of literature that is out there, but not nearly enough. And this is definitely something that needs to be brought to light and be, you know, talked about really in all households, not just in North America and Canada and the US, but every community that was ever affected by colonization in the world, which I don't know if there's any untouched communities anymore. Um, so I'm, I love that you have so much experience and you've done so much research in this area. So you're going to be helping our audience really, really understand these very, very important topics. So I just want to first start by saying that this is the third interview in a series of 12 podcasts. These interviews are part of my research dissertation for all you listeners out there and Today, we are going to be talking about Dr. Breeze Harper's experience in all of those subject matters that she just mentioned. So before we begin, I would, well, as we begin, I would love to know, how did you end up here today where you are? What was that journey that brought you here? Yeah, so um, how I'm here today as someone who's just like deeply engaged in intersections of food and racial and nutrition and health justice. Um, I'd have to go back almost uh, several decades um, into the 80s in rural New England, where uh, my parents took out a mortgage on three acres of land in um, a 99% white town, about 5,000 people at the time. And uh, my father was really focused on cultivating um, abundance for his family and my mom too uh, on multiple levels and um, he is someone from Walnut Grove Mississippi they did the great migration uh, to Saginaw Michigan when he was I think a baby um, and went from that rich land that they had to industrialize north which uh, is the story of many black migrants um, looking for a better way um and when my mom and he partnered and got married they decided when they were living in hartford connecticut that they wanted to start a family on land and grow their own food 
which is very rare in New England for a Black family. Uh, my mm -hmm. father was able to uh, do that in tandem with my mother working and getting a mortgage down to pay for land for this house. And um, what I got interested in was that uh, my father would talk to me about the importance of soil and water and really talk about um, that the town that we had moved to um, had he had always had the water and soil tested when we were living there because he said it, it was industrialized farmland and that they use a lot of pesticides and talked about monoculture and um, what happens basically when you colonize the soil, right? Not just to colonize the soil to turn it into what's now called the United States where I'm based in, but when you colonize the soil microbiome. Um, and, you know, when you're creating not just these, also these monocultures where we were in a town where there were just fields of corn that were not even really, wasn't really food, you know, saying that this looks like abundance, but it's disingenuous abundance, right? It's monoculturals. Um, and then at the same time, me and my twin brother were dealing with this monocultural system and the school system, which was very white supremacist. They didn't really want black people to be there. So really paralleling the colonization of the soil, the soil microbiome being destroyed, um, and it kind of being a reflection of this monocultural, this colonialistic belief of how humans should or should not thrive, this destruction of the soil microbiome and the destruction of the human microbiome, you know, the psychological, mm -hmm. social, whatever. Um, to me, that was very powerful with my, my father kind of telling these stories. So I'm saying and using these words now that seem kind of academic. At the time, I didn't have that language to really understand the stories that they were weaving and what they were trying to cultivate for our family. Um, and then, you know, having access to orchard with these rich foods like peaches and apples. And my father just showing us, you know, he was a master, he's a master gardener. And he's like, you know, they always just show you two apples in the store, but he was, he and my mom were cultivating the, all these different types of apples, you know, purple apples, yellow apples, um, getting uh, this vegetable, this fruit that's, um, one of the three indigenous fruits in that area were called pawpaw plant, you know, all just really teaching us. Mm -hmm. And then I went through puberty and got my period. And my father learned that I was taking ibuprofen for my cramps. And he's like, you can't do that. You're going to kill your liver. And I'm like, but that's what they teach us in health class. You, you have a period and you oh, bleed. Really? That's it. You take some Advil. <clears throat> and he's like, well, what did our people use before? You know, like black people, what were we using before all these pills? You know, and of course, I'm like, I don't care. I'm in pain. He's like, Look around you. Like he was trying to explain to me in the yard what's in the yard. And I honestly didn't care or listen. You know, he's trying to explain dandelion. They call it a weed. It's not a weed. Yeah. Red clover. They call it a weed. It's not a weed. Right. What's the politics of calling a plant that has this rich history, high in quality, very cheap, that can actually help you with reproductive health. Right. So there's just all this stuff going on. And I didn't really listen. And um, when I was in my early 20s after college, after you know, basically not taking anything that my father said seriously, starting every morning in college, eating Hershey bars, drinking soda, um, just not really taking care of myself, graduated and then I was diagnosed with fibroid tumors because I was wondering why. Mm. Why am I in so much discomfort? And um, I told my dad, called him one day and said, I have fibroid tumors. I know that's what mom had. And I, I feel like, I don't know what to do, you know? Um, and then in tandem with that, I was at work and this woman saw me underneath my desk, just like 
in so much pain from my period, just bleeding heavy. And I went to work anyway. And she's like, you need to dis- you need to find out about Queen Afua's work. And I was like, who's Queen Afua? And she's like, she's this Afrocentric queen who uses Kemetic Egyptian healing diet that's vegan to help us re- with our reproductive cycle. She reminds us how we used to eat, how it should be. And then it kind of just all clicked. You know, what she, she showed me this book called Sacred Woman. And then it kind of clicked with me remembering how my father had kind of said this stuff, you know, and the importance of that and that these are not weeds. And I was reading her book and she's talking about nettle. She's talking about red clover. Um, and then I, I remember my mom was 32 and she had a hysterectomy because she had fibroids, which is ridiculous. But that gets into the politics of she didn't really need it. They were very tiny. Uh, but she's a black woman and, you know, do you need more black children? You know, that gets into, you know, who will have higher rates of hysterectomies versus if it's a white woman and you're trying to make sure that you're producing a nation of more white babies, you know, would the doctor have been more of an advocate for her not to have that? You know, these things are very interconnected. Um, uh, So I started getting interested um, at the same time when I had fibroid tumor, I was, um, a graduate student at Harvard, just focusing on black feminist theory and technology. And um, when I was introduced to Queen Afua's work, her book, Sacred Woman, and then started doing research, I was like, I had no idea that reproductive health issues like fibroid tumors are much higher among black women, right? Oh gosh, I didn't realize that we had higher rates of maternal mortality, just everything. And, you know, reading Queen Afu's book, Sacred Woman, where I don't agree with everything in that book. However, going back to what she believes to be Kemetic Egypt, where it was plant-based diets, holistic, greening the body, greening the womb, and what we lost because of enslavement and industrialization and colonization. Um, And then also, you know, I had met people who were vegan. They were mostly white before. It was really only focused on health without maybe thinking about the racial and gender violence um, of colonialism, but also um, focused very much on animal rights. And then Queen Afu was talking about how, you know, the black woman's womb is suffering from over 400 years of this epigenetic trauma, right? Like yeah. that. And um, that it manifests as disease, um, but also because of the lo- because of enslavement, because much of the loss of our food ways what we used to do, the loss of land, because after emancipation, we were supposed to be given our 40 acres, um, that now we're here, right? And we're sick, but the allopathic institutions of medicine, they're not going to understand the depths of that. If anything, they're going to pathologize Black people who continue to be pathologized. It's your fault that you have high rates of hypertension, obesity because of the way you eat, because you're not doing this or that and not looking at the deeper layers of a system that is on this continuum of you know, plantation colonialism and how it affects literally everything, starting with the soil microbiome that was colonized because it is reflecting 
the GI tract's microbiome, right? And then we've got our gut health that also affects the rest of our physical body, but also our spiritual health. So you've got all of these things entangled. And what Queen Afua focused on was something that I had never been um, introduced to on that interconnected level. You know, granted, I listened to my dad talk about this, but then with her book and then suddenly remembering everything he had taught us and being on that land, it just, I made the shift. I got really interested and in really understanding how it's possible that I can go to a medical doctor in the United States and they are trained in less than, I think, four or six hours in nutrition. They're basically not even trained in the material physical health consequences of systemic racism and colonialism. And then many of them have their unconscious or direct biases, anti-Black, anti-Indigenous, um, you know, whatever your ethnic or racial identification is um, that's not white. They have those, right? And then we're expected to be well. And that just blew my mind. So I, so I made the shift. I said, I've never, ever, ever met any Black vegans. I know they exist. Um, so I decided to adhere to Sacred Woman, Queen Afua's book. And I cured my supposedly incurable fibroid tumors within a year by converting to a strictly green, holistic vegan diet that she recommended. And I thought, this is, this is not fair. Like, I think most of the women in my family had to have hysterectomies. They were, their wombs were just taken out of them as if that was the only option. My mom was 32, and I remember that. I was six, but I remember my dad saying she had to have something done, and my dad was just, you know, freaked out about that. I remember that. So when I had told him, I was like, I'm, I don't want this to be something that keeps on happening. It can't just be something that happens. Like, there's got to be more. I love there's so many elements in what you said that um, that I'd love to unpack and really dive into just to help people who are hearing this for the first time. Because like you said, you know, medical school, we know studies have been done to show that medical schools across North America, most doctors receive less than four hours of nutrition training. But it's not just nutrition, right? Nutrition is a huge part. We all eat three times a day, plus snacks, you know, plus beverages. And so, you know, food is a huge part of our health. You know, the nutrients are a huge part of your health. Healing the microbiome is a huge part. And that starts with feeding it the insoluble plant-based fiber and soluble plant-based fiber. We know that. So, but now to ask doctors to consider identifying their own racial biases, to consider understanding the history of oppression against Black people, Indigenous people, people, you know, Spanish, you know, any person of color, really, I mean, like I can just imagine anybody out there who's never heard this before for the first time is getting the double whammy. Like what? You can use food, you can green our body and heal ourselves and reverse disease, these incurable diseases. And there's this whole history around, you know, that led to us having these, you know, chronic diseases that are prevalent, you know, at rates of four times, four to eight times higher amongst BIPOC members. So there's something very, very similar of your history and my history. My mom too had a hysterectomy when she was in her thirties, same sort of thing. The doctor's like, let's just do that. In fact, 
the doctor suggested tying her tubes after she had her second baby said, let's just tie her tubes. And my mom was like, do you ask other white patients that say offer this? And that really stopped him in his place. And she really realized the beginning of, you know, the injustices uh, around being a black woman in a white world. Cause I was the only black kid in my school um, or a person of color. Yes, exactly. I, I figured. Um, also the doctor where I learned about uh, food as medicine, he was actually a German Jewish doctor from a hundred years ago. So in 1918, he was reversing cancer and other autoimmune disorders and tuberculosis and, and so on using the same principles as Queen Afua. But he was a white German Jewish doctor, but he said something, and we actually have these words engraved on the door of our restaurants. We have plant-based whole food restaurants. And it says, our in external, our internal, our external, no, the soil is our external metabolism. And there's something so beautiful in that this man a hundred years ago saying that, but your father saying the exact same thing to you as well. And how did your dad come to know this? What was different about your dad that many other people never knew this, this, this knowledge, where did that come from? You know, I'm, I'm wondering if it's part of the memory of him being in contact with um, family members uh, from rural Mississippi, Mississippi, mm -hmm. though he left a very young, um, he remembers the stories of, I remember him, him telling me that, you know, people would move to the city, be there for years, be diagnosed with something, and then say, I want to go back home to a rural area where I grew up to die there, you know, mm. start going on the land again, start gardening, start eating fruits and vegetables that they, you know, were growing. And suddenly they weren't dying. Mm -hmm. um, and he was just kind of interested in those type of stories. And, and he just, he was just interested in growing and learning. So a lot of it, he also just taught himself. Um, he, he's always kind of been out of the norm. Um, and I think he he has this desire as well for this concept of beloved community that goes beyond just human beings but like you know the soil microbiome as this type of beloved community you know mm. and the soil and i i don't i don't know concretely you know how to tell you how he got to that path um but it just always felt kind of natural mm. um and the way he can perceives um, existence is not in a binary, but kind of interconnected and on a spectrum and a continuum. And I remember um, just the way he raised my twin and I is that you're a spirit having a human experience who will mm -hmm. fall in love with other spirits having a human experience, which um, for a lot of children that I grew up with or teenagers, I remember they were confined to who they were allowed to be friends with or who they were allowed to fall in love with in terms of gender, sexual orientation, religion, and race. So I think um, somehow my father just had that interconnected way of, of understanding life um, that maybe just came from, who knows, you know, some of the stories his family told him, some of the things that his, his own mom went through. He is the third child. The first two died. Um, his mm -hmm. mother was a t uh, very young when she had the first two, was married very young, um, 14 or 15. 
Her babies died the first week that they were born. Mm. Very rural Mississippi where they just didn't have what they need. So, uh, and it's often dangerous for teenagers to be pregnant um, if they're not, their bodies are just not ready and someone that young, you know, and then the foods that you need. So his mother is the result of my great grandmother having to deal with poverty, sexism, and racism in rural Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And, um, she was so poor. She couldn't afford shoes. Her feet hurt. And, um, a white Scottish man propositioned her and said, I'll basically give you shoes if you have sex with me. Mm. And, um, uh, my grandmother came out of that arrangement. Um, and that of course was illegal back then because it was called miscegenation and you're not allowed to couple with, you know, someone outside of your race. Though, of course that happened all the time. The slave masters were always doing that. Um, and, and my grandmother, they, they just really struggled. And then my grandmother, um, got married when she was, I think she was 13 when she got married, uh, to my grandfather who was in his early twenties. Um, and her first child died within a week, I believe of being born, um, got pregnant again, child died again. Um, and that's hard. Like, I can't imagine the trauma of that. Right. And then my, my dad said they finally got a midwife to help with that pregnant, with his, her being pregnant with my father. Mm -hmm. Um, he was born early and she, he said she learned the midwife knew how to put the oven warm enough to keep me alive, but not bake me, you know, um, and, and kept him alive to help her helped, you know, feeding all this stuff. And I was like, that's another rich history, right? The history of, of black midwives before the um, medicalization, the um, colonization of birthing. Yeah. That was the granny midwives, mostly a majority black who were, who had that rich knowledge of maternal health and postpartum health and how to keep the babies alive and the mom happy, healthy, alive using certain herbs and food and access to the land to do that. So, you know, my father is alive because of this black granny midwife being able to help, you know, this 16 year old girl and her baby. Right. And he, I remember he, and that, that story never left my mind because it was on so many levels, you know, just what it took for them to get here and for him to survive and just the arrangement where my grandmother came out of. And your first two babies dying because you didn't have the health, the food, the nutrition that you needed. I mean, that's deep, right? So I think to some degree, I'm wondering those stories as a way to navigate where he goes or how he moved forward with just trying to re-remember all of what was supposedly lost or taken away because of Jim Crow, because of slavery and colonialism and how, despite all of that, Fast forward to 1982, when they took out a mortgage on that land in New England in an informally segregated town, mm-hmm. you know, to start with that and teaching me all of this stuff. And now here I am, you know, trying to do that on an academic, scholarly, activist, consulting level to bring it all back to that soul microbiome that had been colonized and um, turned into what's now the United States, but also colonized through the genocide of the people who were living on this soil and the enslavement, right? The capture of enslavement of Africans to work the soil as agricultural workers and stuff like that. 
Yeah, that is, that is beautiful and rich, that story. And, um, and it's heavy uh, on all levels as well, because even as you speak about what happened to your dad, I went to Mississippi on a tennis scholarship. And so I got to experience, you know, a lot, a lot of that oppression being a black Indian white woman. Um, I sat right in the center of everything because people didn't know if I was black, if I was white. So I got to heal, hear stories from both sides and I got to hear the deep, intense racism that is so prevalent, but obviously people aren't necessarily like, you know, speaking it out loud on campus, but it was there. It was pervasive. It was deep. Um, I got to witness the abuse to the land through the vast amount of pesticides when I was in Mississippi. We know that the Mississippi River is one of the most polluted rivers in the world with pesticides. We know I got to witness the deep, deep lack of nutrition in Mississippi. I was, you know, we talk about obesity rates being, you know, prevalent 75% of the North American population right now, but 75% of the kids in my class were obese back then that was in 1994 and that was hard but back then I remember you know in just you telling telling this beautiful story um and providing this deep insight into all the reasons why we see the see you know obesity why we see these chronic diseases you know it makes me sad because I remember the judgment I had then just being like, why don't you eat better? Why don't you exercise? And, you know, which is what my entire dissertation is 20 something years later saying, well, it's not about just eating well. It's not just about exercising. It's about all of this underlying history that is pervasive today. It is still present today. And um, yeah, and it's interviews like this that I'm hoping will reach people to show that, you know, we have to have these deeper conversations. So one of the other pieces that I would love for you to talk about a little bit more, um, you talked about the racial biases in the medical system. And if you can just elaborate that on that a little bit more, because again, you know, if somebody goes to the doctor and they're ill, and if there's racial biases present, obviously somebody of color is going to be treated much differently than somebody who is white. So if you can just talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, one of the things that strikes me as uh, troubling is the research that shows that um, Black people are perceived by white medical practitioners of having higher tolerances for pain mm. than white people. And that unfortunately goes back, if you trace back to scientific racism, I put that in quotes because it wasn't really science, mm. justifying why you can enslave Africans is because they have a higher tolerance for pain they don't really have spirits and souls. And, you know, that is positioned against the narrative of white womanhood. White women are fragile. They're the pinnacle of morality. And we don't want them to suffer or go through pain. So, you know, fast forward 400 years later, and you've got a majority of people who have either unconscious or conscious biases where they truly believe if a Black person in a situation where they're at the doctor's office or the emergency room is literally saying, this is, I'm experiencing a lot of pain or discomfort here. 
that you may actually think that they're exaggerating. Here, just go home, take an Advil, it's probably just a headache when it's actually maybe a brain tumor or you're having a, I don't know if aneurysms are painful, but you know, an aneurysm. So data is showing that because of that, that often Black people are not diagnosed or they're misdiagnosed because there's this perception that, oh, um, the pain isn't real or you're exaggerating or you should be able to handle this. Um, other things, you know, COVID brought a lot of the biases into play that and are not necessarily direct, but the ways in which you're supposed to read if somebody may be having difficulty breathing or they're not getting enough oxygen, check their skin. Are they, are they pale? Are their lips blue? Well, if you're a darker hued person, you're not going to be able to see those things. Yeah. Right. Um, so just really just things like that. Um, medical equipment, like I'm wearing a smartwatch, uh, doesn't, it's not very accurate. If you have darker skin, whatever the technology is used, so it can check your pulse, get, check your oxygen level. It is assumed to be detecting lighter or white skin. Right. So, I mean, I could give you a whole list of these things. Um, I mean, how many times you had said that your mom practitioner had said, you know, maybe you can get your tubes tied. You know, I was, I was, I was proposed to me that I should, maybe I should get on birth control. I think after I'd been pregnant with my third child, um, no one, I never asked for that advice. You know, I didn't ask, you know, but it was kind of implied. And I wondered, you know, if I had been a white woman, would that be the case? Or would they be trying to help me? Because mm -hmm. there's the, there is this interesting fear from a lot of white people in the United States that the numbers are going down of white women giving birth to enough white babies, right? So mm -hmm. there's just so much happening. There's also, if someone is told you need to eat an, a, a healthy way, and then they're given pamphlets about how to prepare kale, how to eat, you know, carrots, how to, you know, bake a certain way. It's all from usually a Euro angle culinary lineage. So there isn't, there often isn't the understanding that if you're going to give someone a particular type of food that's supposed to be healthy, don't assume that they have the same culinary heritage as white people, you know, mm -hmm. maybe they might be intimidated thinking, well, how I'm going to turn this into my cultural food? Like how, well, how will this play into my cultural food? So maybe I'm just not going to do it. There's so many different layers to why this is a problem to also pathologizing and criminalizing black people. And I speak specifically from black experience um, and research, because I know there's also indigenous and um, yeah. Latinx people and um, Asian people, but just really just thinking about the pathologization of just Black people, Blackness, um, and even being blamed for the fact that you might come in with a nutritional-related disease, you know, but you know better, and why are you drinking so much? Why are you smoking so much? Versus understanding that addiction itself is a public health problem. It should not be, a, it should not be criminalized. You know, really thinking about when there was the um, there's the current issue around what is it? My apologies. What is it now that a lot of people are overdosing on? Oh, opioids. Of, oh, yeah, opioid crises. You know, yeah. and suddenly it is a public health crisis, and I I saw so many people's pictures on there that were white that were being affected by this, mm -hmm. and suddenly it's a public health crisis. You know, but 
when um say crack was affecting majority black community you know it was criminalized it wasn't understood as right. a public health crisis that no one just wakes up one morning and wants to be addicted you know just even the way that's responded to um and then the ways in which um the medical profession when we're focusing on uh, psychological emotional health that it's very rare that you can even find a practitioner who understands how systemic racism actually impacts wellness mm-hmm. you know so if i go look on if you go to psychology today they can help you find a, a health care i mean i'm sorry a, a mental health care practitioner it's very hard to find someone you know who is going to understand how like I'm a black identified woman how does systemic racism and sexism impact how I navigate the world it's so hard yeah yeah and you know that there just aren't enough practitioners doing that but we can look at the pipeline and why is there the problem with trying to get enough well versed practitioners of color into that pipeline so they can you know represent what BIPOC need it's 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 deep and I think a lot of people with good intentions who have racial privilege may not even think about this they just go back to the easy binary of judging you know yeah and this you know this it brings up a huge topic you know with just you talking about how um, addiction was criminalized, but now it's a public health uh, emergency, really, and millions and millions of funding put into it because we see so many white people addicted to these opioids that were prescribed by white people. And But that also is what's happening now in the world of trauma, right? That now there is this huge movement to identify trauma in people's lives so really talking about father-daughter relationships father-son relationships but again I don't hear in a lot of these communities that are talking about you know all the trauma and how that relates to addiction but the racism slavery um you know you know oppression of indigenous black you know people of color how that is not being addressed but now all of this funding is going into trauma work as well and so I do see how yeah we have there's so much work to be done there's so much but that's why I'm doing the work that I do um and then there's you know I'm here in California where cannabis has been you know it's been legalized but there was a time it was called weed and you know three three strikes and you're out but now who dominates what's now been commodified into a new healthier option who mm-hmm. dominates now white men dominate the cannabis industry uh, something that was a sacred herb it still is and you know people who wanted to use it were criminalized for using this so you know just really thinking about this isn't, we're not talking a hundred years ago. We're talking you know, a few years ago. And, you know, that in itself is inequitable. You know, as we, as I read more about the amazing health benefits of cannabis and, you know, not just um, cannabis where people are eating as edibles um, or smoking um, for 
for um, a whole host of um, mental and or physical issues that they're dealing with. But just really, how did we get to this point, right? And how did white supremacy and colonialism take cannabis, criminalize it, and then now we're at this point where it's been commodified and it's been remarketed. And the story now is that it's this revolutionary way to engage in wellness. Like, I think that's so important. And mm -hmm. when we talk about how racism impacts, um, you know, the wellness industry, same with psychedelics, who is dominating this right now? You know, and 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 how how can we understand what justice and equity will look like in terms of these quote unquote psychedelics? A lot of these mushrooms, these herbs, they are sacred for particular indigenous communities. And now, for a while, you couldn't use them. Again, they're you're criminalized. It's an illegal drug. And now, who owns it? Now it's intellectual property now, not like all this stuff that is deeply enmeshed in neoliberal capitalism, which is basically from the lineage of, you know, plantation, colonialist capitalism. I mean, this is deep. Yeah. And it's, you know, when I hear you talk about cannabis, it's the same though, as any herb that is out there, Right that all of these herbs that were used by, and when I use, say the word indigenous, I am talking about any person from any land around the world, um, you know, who was born there, who lived from the land, who knew about seven generations, they practiced it, not because it was a brand, but because it was just the way, like, like your father said, everything is connected and interconnected. But you, you know, talking about cannabis makes me think about every single word that herb that is being commodified now is a supplement. It also makes me think about veganism in general right now, that if you look at, you know, standing up and fighting for animals, I understand that for sure. And I love that deep empathy, but doing that without understanding that the majority of Indigenous people from around the world were their original vegans or plant-based, you know, eaters. Um, and by not acknowledging that and thinking that it's a new thing, right? And that we just, you know, as a white person, we discovered veganism and the world should be vegan. And But without addressing all the historical oppression, repression, uh, suppression, and it is also, isn't it further oppression in a way? especially yeah. as it gets commodified. Yeah, I think um, there's just so much to kind of untangle what you were just talking about, um, that much of veganism is practiced through consumption and it's uh, through commodities that have been marketed to uh, the average uh, shopper as cruelty-free, green, whatever. So um, there isn't a deep genealogy of understanding how that commodity came to you, how it came to be. Mm -hmm. um i think there tends to be just a lack of critical understanding of how things are historicized or how um histories are erased mm -hmm. and how commodities get to us and how like the stories behind it so um when we're focusing on what sounds like you're talking about is kind of white veganism um white veganism takes a intentional erasure of those histories and of those stories 
Um, and if we really understand how whiteness functions, um, whiteness is about being superior. Um, it's about purity. It's about supremacy. And um, for the listeners, I'm not talking about skin color. I'm talking about literally a social construct that its consequences are a caste system. So when I'm talking about whiteness and how whiteness as a process, as a practice, as a philosophy is, in, is not, let's, let me go back. Veganism is not going to be untouched by that process, at least here in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, so when I was doing my work in 2004, starting off really understanding why is it, A, I'm interested in veganism, but there aren't any BIPOC voices, and two, the most white vegan books that I'm reading, the uh, people I'm meeting, why is it that there seems to be this myth or narrative that it's a new thing that this is something new revolutionary and it's once again it's it's white people who are the saviors they're the they're they're on the moral high ground so they know best like i can't believe nobody else knows that you know it's really important to just have a plant-based diet and to treat animals better like we have to be the ones who are moving forward as the moral warriors you know and how is it that that was erased that history that <laughs> like her book sacred woman and so many other folk who are drawing from indigenous foodways that they were not necessarily vegan but it was heavily plant-centric holistic and it, things weren't turned into supplements right they weren't commodified it was part of this whole interconnected web of being <laughs> and that the way you're eating and you know um, healing the body, I'm sorry, body, mind, and spirit. It was a communal sacred process. But now we're in this neoliberal capitalist era of veganism where things are commodified. It's a supplement. It's detangled and sorry, it's a, it's detached from this long history over the last at least 500 years in the United States of whiteness and supremacy. And I think that's that's what a lot of people with good intentions in the mainstream vegan movement are missing. They don't they don't even realize they're supposed to be asking those questions yeah. and changing their frames that are more anti-racist and anti-colonial to really understand, you know, why is it the narrative of veganism right now is X, Y, and Z? And yeah. why is it for up to a few years ago, it was very, very white. Mm -hmm. Well, is it that BIPOC aren't interested in it? Is it really that BIPOC are so pathological? They just don't care. They'll eat whatever they don't care. Or is it something else, right? Like how, how has white supremacy had a major role in that exclusiveness? Yeah, that's, um, I think that one question in itself is a massive dissertation there in itself. It is, um, it, you know, I brought this up in a previous podcast and I love this organization. It's called the Vegan Soul Sisters, started by a woman in Tennessee. They're, you know, it's 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 amazing what she's done, how she discovered veganism for her daughter's health, for her health. But, and it's a huge but, and this brings us back to just knowledge and awareness of our own histories. 
many of the individuals in this group, it's like 60 or 70,000 African-American vegans that, but they're eating all like predominantly packaged food. Mm-hmm. And I understand that a lot of individuals in Georgia, you know, in Atlanta and Tennessee and Mississippi, there's food budgets that have to be considered. So there's a lot of discussion about how cheap they were able to buy this package to begin food. But when I look at the prices, it's still not as cheap as if you go and buy the carrots or the squash or the potatoes or the, you know, the whole foods in itself. But there's also the lack of, I see the lack of of knowledge, of awareness. Um, And that's also something in looking at the Vegan Soul Sisters, incredible, but also how harmful is that potentially when we look at chronic disease rates because we're not going to reverse these chronic disease rates while you know we're eating these foods that are packaged and processed and that's like you know that's that's just another level of nutritional literacy that i see is missing and not not just within bipoc communities but you know the trend in vegan food now is um a lot of these meat and dairy analogs um mm-hmm. which i understand it like i understand what the intention is however why does a particular substitute need to have 30 ingredients exactly half of which i'm not sure about and you know i'm really focused on the sacredness of the gut health yeah. so a lot of these foods that i my 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 colleagues will get excited about look at breeze there's a vegan version of skittle and i'll look at it i'm like but there's you know there's a vegan version of this i'm like it's there's like 25 grams of high glycemic index sugar in that granted animal was not harmed great we get it but this is gonna harm your gut yeah what so so you know this is how do we have a conversation where like i'm not I, i i'm not judging i'm i'm what I'm doing is trying to understand it from the gut health perspective. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot, there's just a lack of literacy because there's so many foods out there, even organic foods that are not necessarily vegan. They're still so high in sodium, so high in sugar yeah. ingredients that are not going to allow your GI, your gut health to thrive. And so there's, there seems to be a lack of literacy around once we go vegan okay, then what about the nutritional content? Um, but then also how to cook foods that are bulk ingredients. Um, but we also live in a era where most of us don't have time necessarily to cook and sit down in a communal setting food, right? So there are many cultures in the world where people make time <laughs> Mm-hmm. to actually sit down and eat a well-prepared meal. Now, how can you do that in a society where most of us are in a hustle economy now in the United States here where I am? You don't have time. So, you know, that that plays, I think, a lot into that too, is that there is a lack of understanding how would I prepare, you know, someone drop down some chard and some dried lentils. How would I prepare that into a meal? But people are busy too. And they're, people got two, three jobs, right? So if you package it and now you've made it vegan, I guess that's better than what I was doing before. But why do we still have to set a low bar? 
you know, what structural and systemic inequities are happening where we're at the point where we can't even get what we need. We don't know how to properly prepare the bulk items. We're not eating communally. Um, or rushing, maybe having lunch in our car, that five minute break we have, you know, gulping down something, you're not chewing your food long enough. <laughs> like, it's just, we're in this toxic, fast paced society, which is basically the outcome of the last four or 500 years of, of a very thick, capitalistic, exploitative society that has damaged human beings, soil and people to the point where certain processes and practices around eating have been normalized and we don't realize that it's actually causing illness. And to me, that's just like, that to me is really sad and really upsetting. Mm -hmm. And I love that you're bringing up all of these, you know, in the everything, the systemic inequalities, the toxic fast-paced society, not chewing our food, um, not eating communally, like these are all really, really important contributors to the high chronic disease rates that we have as well. We know scientifically everything that you just said, this is true. We know people who eat, families that eat together, communities that eat together are healthier. We know that chewing our food is healthier from a scientific perspective, just releasing the saliva, which stimulates all the digestive processes. Um, processes. Um, there is something that two of the previous interviewee, the participants in this research said, and it was, to me, I was shocked, but I also understood it. The first person said, you know, in certain indigenous communities, if you have Pop-Tarts and that's all you have, eat the Pop-Tarts. The second participant said, you know, if, you know, food is culture. And so if it is, you know, going to be a food that is culturally um, accepted and brings you joy, then eat that. And I understood that from the economic perspective, from the lack of access to food, because in Canada and many parts of the U.S., you know, to get a bag of cherries could cost you 30 to $90 to get a banana. You might not even be able to access fresh food in the community. Mm -hmm. And so I love that, you know, she brought up the topic of not shaming people for what they're eating. And that course, and I get that. However, at the end of the day, we know that processed refined foods, even if we eat them with pure joy in our hearts and love, and we're eating them in community, scientifically, our bodies cannot thrive long-term eating these foods. So I'm just curious about what thoughts that brings up for you, because I was left like almost sort of in in a purgatory yesterday, trapped being like, I know what they're saying and I understand that, but I also know the science around food and which is the science of nature. We're not any different from the tree and the grass and the soil and the horse and the, you know, animals that they're not eating, you know, for the vast majority of the wild animals, they're not eating, you know, processed or fine packaged food. Yes, the industrialized farm animals are, but we see how sick they are as well. Yeah. And I think that's just hard to answer because, you know, I have, I just remember, you know, there are, I have, I know there are just fond memories of, you know, 
I didn't, we didn't do it all the time, but I remember when my, my mom would take my twin and I to McDonald's and have a happy meal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> we did like, that once a year for our birthday. Yeah. You know, that was so like, it was just so much fun and I, and it was just joyful. Um, but then I was, you know, the question brings up not judging because, you know, if, you know, a majority of indigenous people's land that was taken and then they were like, let me put you in the worst situation where you don't have access to even healthier foods. And then you've built a new culinary practice around those foods that are not going to help you thrive. You know, that's just, it would be unfair to just say that, you know, um, that's, 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 I don't like the word bad, you know, um, mm-hmm. it's like you're put in this situation and then they're, they're trying to thrive. They're trying to find joy, but, um, I'm thinking about this in the context of also, um, with a lot of black communities are in food apartheid spaces. Um, I'm just trying to think about this because how, how how do we, how do we, decolonize what we think is joy like how do we decolonize pleasure um how how can we somehow fathom a a close future in which certain foods could also bring us joy and pleasure that we could get used to I mean there are many things that I loved I mean I grew up on a home like a semi-homestead but I also ate a, a, a junk food that gave me pleasure. And I knew now looking back, I can't eat the same foods. My my palate is not used to it. My body literally would probably not be happy if I had a Dr. Pepper, which I loved in college, right? Like yeah. if you gave me a Dr. Pepper, which is about 40 grams of sugar, I would probably get very sick. Yeah. You know, somehow I was, I, I adjusted my palate. So how is it now that, steamed kale gives me joy you know how is it now that um just drinking water and not sweat a soda gives me joy i now look forward to my hemp seed smoothies i crave it and that joy so now i know how i got to that i have financial privilege transportation privilege i have many privileges that have made that easy for me Mm -hmm. so I don't have a solution or an answer for you. I um I know it's very complex and you know and to be completely transparent, I didn't grow up food insecure. You know, I didn't grow up I I think I had a I have a very rare um experience as a black person in the United States. Yeah. You know, so I understand that, you know, my dad who you know, he's a master gardener. Dude has diabetes, you know, yeah. as much as he loves growing fruit and vegetables, as much as he has access to that, dude still ate in a way that burned out his pancreas because, you know, like this is complicated, right? So we talk about, well, once you have that access, then that's all you need. But dude has that access and still he's, Mm -hmm. he's like the hardest thing it has been in my whole life is to kick sugar. Right. Right. And, and, And he was addicted to it before, you know, he began doing the homestead route. You know, these are very deep questions that I wish I could have an easy answer for you. But I think about that when my dad, thankfully he's still alive. He's almost 80. 
but you know, he struggles still with diabetes and that sugar craving. And, you know, what occasionally with what I'll visit and I'll be like, why do you have intimates in the, why do you have intimates? Why don't you just have a date? You know, <laughs> it's a whole sugar, you know, he's like, but it doesn't taste as good. You know? So he even knows, even after all the things he's taught me, you know, but there's still, there's something even deeper, right? Well, yeah. it's the same as my mom who, you know, we grew up, you know, she had, we had a huge garden when we moved from Africa to Maple Ridge, you know, massive garden. I remember my brothers eating sweet onions. Like I didn't realize onions were sweet and out of the garden when they were like one year old, you know, it was, um, you know, we had, we had an orchard as well. My parents bought an old orchard in a rural, in an urban community. And so they, all the kids would come jump the fence because I lived right by the school and they would, you know, pick all the apples and the cherries and the plums out of the trees. And so I grew up that way. Then my mom adopted my youngest brother when she was in her forties, my mm -hmm. mom and dad did. And all of a sudden she's bringing diet Pepsi in the house. I was like, we never got that except for <laughs> birthdays and special occasion. And all of a sudden, you know, but I understand you get older, you're just like, it, it's hard work to do the farming. It's hard work to, and you know, and the food is addictive. Yeah. And then it's just like, what is it trying to compensate for? I mean, there's so much, yeah. you know, and I, but I don't also don't want to say people are eating, you know, a whole pint of ice cream because they're addicts. They're also, there's mm -hmm. joy and pleasure. And I don't want to just say these foods are addictive and like, mm -hmm. it, it just, it just, cause that also kind of criminalizes and pathologizes too. And, mm -hmm. you know, I'm a basic, I practice whole foods, veganism, and I do eat what would be considered junk food. You know, yeah. I don't shame myself. I don't guilt myself over it. Um, it's complicated, you know, there, and there are certain days where stuff will happen, um, usually based on the work I'm doing. Cause even though I practice veganism and I well known for my sister vegan project work, I do mostly full-time diversity, equity, inclusion, um, consulting and work, which is focused mostly on anti-racism. And it can get really frustrating with some of the things or the surveys or the data that come back from our, some of our clients. Some days I'm like, I don't care. I just, I'm just going to eat that whole pint of vegan ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> I just want it. Like, I don't like the steam kale. I don't know. It's just like not doing it for me or hemp, you know, it's not all the time, but I do it too, but I don't feel guilty. I'm like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to mm -hmm. do it. And, but, but then I'm always like thinking to myself, what about that stressful situation? And I reach for that though I know I'm not going to sleep tonight, I'm going to, it's going to screw up my, my flora, you know, but I'm yeah. going to do it anyway. But I do know how to replace the flora that I screwed up. You know, I know how to, yeah. <laughs> so I know all that. I'm like, I'm going to have to do lots of probiotics tomorrow. I'm going to have to do, you know, to get things balanced. But um, so what's going on? Well, I, I know that. And I wish a lot more people who do practice holistic veganism can just say, oh yeah, by the way, I just, I had two donuts yesterday. Yeah. And then by the way, um, you know, I did this or that. Because I think one of the things with the whole vegan movement as a health movement, it shows all these perfect gurus. No human being is perfect. You know, that's, yeah, I want to yeah. see the days where you're like, you know, if, I work out every day, but you know, yesterday I just decided not to work out. I sat on the couch all day, played video games and ate a whole box of, you know, sugar cereal. Like that's, yeah. that's who I want to hear from. Yeah. Because I think if we start hearing that we're all vulnerable that we, nobody is perfect and veganism or whole foods living, if you choose to just eat holistically and not necessarily veganism, it's not a purity thing. Can we get out of the purity and supremacy rhetoric? I think that binary of, you know, pure versus impure, 
and our our bodies as this site of purity but in a way that's been once again colonized right and then you shame and judge others that's not the purity i'm looking for i'm looking the, for the purity of vulnerability i'm looking for the purity of understanding that we're kind of going through these flows and sometimes we go backwards sometimes we go forward and what we're trying to do i'm looking for like that type of flexible purity if that makes sense not a purity that's part of a supremacist binary way of thinking that just makes it much more difficult when we're trying to figure out how to um, engage in nutritional and health wellness, and at least in the context of North America, which it's really hard to entangle away from um, how capitalism and colonialism have created this very purist and supremacist rhetoric around everything. Mm -hmm. um, so, for the last 10 minutes here, I mean, we can go longer if you have time, but I want to respect your time um, for what we said, you know, we'd spend 90, together, 90 minutes together in this interview. Um, for moving forward, you know, you have a lot of knowledge about health. You are definitely, like you said, privileged, you know, with transportation, money, uh, lifestyle, a father who had the knowledge. So moving forward for somebody who has knowledge and has a lot of information and education around this um, in so many different areas, you know, is education the like one of the answers, like moving forward, what is it that we are to do to see that systemic change that we want to see in the world? Yeah, I think, um, of course, I'm biased, but I really think the power, the, I don't think people are going to be persuaded by hardcore science. First of all, a lot of us are um, suspicious of science because of how it's been used historically um, for sexist and racist and, you know, colonialist, classist agenda. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think it's going to take more than just the scientific evidence showing. I think there's power in cultural storytelling and discovering what you know, what were your ancestors doing? You know, I think it's, it was really powerful for me and a lot of uh, mostly black people that I met when you learned, wow, we didn't start off as slaves. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, when you start learning the different agricultural and food ways, science ways um, of a people, your people, that maybe you learn about maybe one or two pages in K through 12 history book. You know, just like having those stories, the power of of telling those stories with agency, how we were innovative and resilient. I think that's so powerful and linking those stories to our connections to um, this interconnected ecosystem that starts off with the sacredness of the water, the soil, non-human animals and having those stories. I think that's so powerful. Um, but also, you know, how to tell a story if you want to move forward and toward, you know, sustainable futures and bodies and ecosystems um, is to do it with unconditional love and without that judgment. Um, and I think it's really important also moving forward um, to understand really the role um, that colonialism and capitalism continues to kind of play in narrating um, this the, like disingenuous abundance. I don't know how else to explain it that, you know, are we going to find a future of health 
through all of this commodified stuff, even if it's commodified vegan packaged stuff, right? Um, still living in an individualistic way, not living communally. I think, and this is not very popular because um, I think what's even more problematic to talk about in the United States beyond like uh, talking about racism is really problematizing capitalism. You know, I think, yeah. you know, you can't really understand how to move forward without understanding um, not just the history of colonialism and racism, but how sustainable is capitalism? You know, how sustainable can we be if we continue to move forward in um, within a capitalist model of being? And that is very dangerous to say. I know that because we don't screw around with capitalism, blah, blah, blah. But my dissertation work, I mean, it focused on decolonial veganism and really questioning what happens when you're commodifying vegan foods within a neoliberal capitalist model that is sustained by racism, poverty, classism, individualism, right? So I think moving forward, we really have to think about alternatives to capitalism. And like I said, I know it's not popular. And I mean, it's empire, you know, you want to mess with empire, but I'm going to put it out there if anyone wants to join me. How? And there are, we know there's alternatives because I'm not saying going back to the past is all dandy. We know that there are still many problems before capitalism, yeah. but there are ways that people have been able to function and live more harmoniously without necessarily a capitalist or colonialist model. So it's there. Yeah. It, it is there. And I join you on that for sure. I do see how we, you know, and, and it's, we have to have these conversations because it's what allows us to envision a world um, you know, that is beyond uh, this capitalist model that we're in. But you also brought up the point about living communally. And that is something I speak about often, which often gets my my butt in trouble, because I talk about living communally and people auto automatically hear communism. communism. Wow, but communism. Yes. Yeah. And 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 as opposed to being cut off from you know, just immediately denouncing it because of what you think communism yeah, is, yeah. what the media has told us communism is, but what is, what could a new communism look like? And, yeah. you know, because communism did start off on a very healthy pretense, but of course, just like anything, people can turn it into this evil empire. Yeah. And, you know, when, you know, and and so what could that look like? Because again, you know, even though I, and I do understand how science has been used against black people, indigenous people. So I do understand that people are leery of science, but at the same time, science does show us that communal living is very, very healthy for our soul, soul our spirit, you know, economically, it makes sense. Uh, you know, we have mothers like you and I that are living in these houses, trying to raise our kids and feed them well and make healthy dinners, but why not live together exactly and yeah you know just i mean that's another thing that we could talk about is you know this concept of um the monogamous nuclear family mm -hmm. you know? um, and i just it, it's not but that's what capitalism needs and like you know just mm -hmm. it's not it's not sustainable um and you know i'm financially educationally like you know transportationally privilege and I'm struggling with totally. trying to figure all of that out and I'm partnered right so 
you know, this concept of um, individualistic nuclear families versus the communal li living and, you know, a village. So I know there's ways to do it. I think most people I talk to are fearful of life outside of that capitalist model. Then what will I have? How will I have pleasure? How will I have yeah. joy? Because we've been told that joy comes from you having the choice um, and the access to abundance of everything, but do you really need all this stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. So is a future of abundance quantity or quality, right? Mm -hmm. So what is, how can we redefine abundance? And I think, you know, most people just get really scared. You know, we last 500 years in the United States, it's focused, your happiness is property, right? So you own ownership. So yeah. how, what will my happiness be outside of that? You know, um, I think it's just really hard for people to, envision or I don't know um understand what that could be like and you know how will my happiness be affected I think how how can we decolonize our concept of happiness and I think that's for most people it's scared I understand that fear is a really great way to control the, the masses you know by telling them if you don't if you didn't have capitalism that you'd be living in a cave somewhere yeah as if they're one extreme to another, there, it can't be something else. It's like, you know, I'm glad I live in the United States in this capitalist economy, you know, free market, because I could be in, then you you take some random country where maybe communism didn't work out so well, and then you use that as an example versus all the other actually examples, exactly. historically the present, where things are working actually pretty well in alternatives to capitalism, right? So I think, exactly. I think that's a thing. But I know we're out of time because I actually do have to yes. get, go over to my next engagement. Um, I don't know if I answered all your questions because I can you, I can talk forever. So I love it that you can, and I know in talking with you more that we would be be unpacking even more and more contributors to our high level of chronic disease rates. And I do mm -hmm. love this last piece that you did leave us with, which is the individualistic, monogamous nuclear family. Nobody has brought that up yet as being one of the contributors to our um, our health being where it's at right now. So I do appreciate. Um, all, everything that you've contributed. And of course, if there's anything else at all that you would like to contribute that you remember, please feel free. You can text it to me. You can voice message it to me. I can definitely include it in the research data as well. Um, and I would love to definitely have you on our podcast again, just as a podcast, not a research podcast. Okay. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I have, I, I didn't even bring in that I did like four plant-based pregnancies and birthed at home and exactly, and, and, and like that's something that I wanted to talk about, um, just all the things I learned, you know, and all of the misinformation, misinformation that is thrown at you. I and would so, love to do you know, a so show. Be, yeah, that would be something because people ask me that all the time, you know, how is uh. it? Yeah. And it was, I mean, it was a very uh, interesting experience, but being surveilled by so many people, like you're going to kill your babies because you're vegan. You're going to kill your baby because you're bicycling up till the eighth month. You know, yeah. I actually have a contribution in Carol J. Adams new book about bicycling while vegan and everyone's unsolicited opinions <laughs> when I was bicycling with my big belly, you know, um, pregnancy, just there and, or finding out that I'm vegan while pregnant. Amazing. Wow. Oh, yeah. I bet. And that let's do a show on that a hundred percent because it aligns with the work that I do because I help a lot of women who are infertile and their partners who have zero sperm count actually get pregnant after years of being told that they'll never have babies. So it's beautiful. It it can happen quickly that the reproductive system bounces back when you do put all of these beautiful nutrients, plant-based whole food nutrients into your body. It's amazing how quickly the reproductive system says, 
let's do this. Yeah. But um, we're seeing so many women uh, families struggle and not being able to create families of their own because of basically eating this processed packaged food and the stress that goes along with working in a medical system that thinks that they can solve it through IVF and, yeah. and hormone replacement when the answer is really in your backyard, it's in the soil, it's in the food. Yeah. So let's do that show for sure. And I will, and I want to speak to you about seeds of Sankofa. There is so much um, that I, questions that I had, but everything that you brought was was beautiful. It was a gift. So thank you so much for being yeah. on this podcast and being a part of this research. You're welcome. Thanks for your work. And I love that your program is having, you know, a dissertation portfolio because this mm -hmm. makes so much more sense. So um, yeah, Seeds of Sankofa is my master's thesis and my dissertation work using Afro-fantasy and Afrofuturism to explore that because I no one's going to read my dissertation. <laughs> um, but I think people will want to read an Afro-futuristic, Afro-fantasy novel that, you know, talks about the content that was in um, those two, two, two manuscripts. Well, let's do a third podcast on that alone. And then let's bring your research to light through video, through audio, so people can enjoy it when they're biking and walking and, and working in their garden and they, they'll be able to have access to it. So I would love to do that with you. That sounds good. Thanks, Nicolette. Is that how you pronounce your name, Nicolette? Yeah, Nicolette. I love how you say it. It's beautiful. Perfect. Amazing. Thank you, Dr. Breeze Harper, for being on our show. We'll be sharing this with you so you can share it with your audience as well. Okay. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Okay. Wonderful. Okay. Enjoy the rest of your day, your family, life, everything, and we'll connect again soon. Thanks. You too. Okay. Bye. Bye.